Well, I am so grateful for everyone who has dropped by today, tuning in, logging on. Thank you for worshiping with us today. If you would, take your copy of God's Word and open to Luke 15. We're going to look at the very last verses in this parable, the greatest short story ever told, a parable of the prodigal son. So the end of it deals with the older brother. So that's what we're going to look at today, verse 25 through verse 32. I took my girls to the beach this week, and I know you, if you look at me, you can't tell I've been to the beach. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm the only person on planet Earth that can spend a week at the beach and come back with lighter, not darker skin. Like I get in the sun, I go from white to red to whiter. No tanning at all. So we went, had, had a great time. We went to one restaurant and got some food, brought it back to the, to the room, and Brady and I put our mask on and went in and ordered the food, and the, and the change due back was $14.33. Now, one of our family traditions is we collect coins through the year, and we save those, we roll those, and we take them and cash them in, and whatever money we get, that's spending money for the next year's vacation, and our girls know if you want to go on the vacation, you're going to roll some pennies, all right? So... That's what we do. And so this money I paid the food with was actually some of that spending money from rolling coins from last year. So $14.33 is due back me. They hand me $14. I said, Where's, what about 33 cents? They said, well, I'm sorry. We're in the midst of a coin shortage. We don't have any change. Is that okay? Is that okay? So there's a long line and, and, and it's, you know, it's, I've got my mask on, and I, ju- I just start nodding like this, that, yeah, it's okay. But the whole time, as I'm wearing a mask, I'm wearing another mask because I'm thinking the whole time, no, it's not okay. That 33 cents is money for next year's vacation. This is not okay. And then I turn around, walk outside. The first thing we see when we go outside, I see a penny on the ground. Now, you tell me how we're having a coin shortage when I personally, last week, picked up off the ground 17,894 pennies. There are pennies everywhere everywhere. It doesn't make any sense, pun intended, that we're in a coin shortage. But the irony was not lost on me. There I stood with a mask on, wearing another mask, masking what was really going on. I was nodding like everything was okay. All the while, I'm thinking, that's my 33 cents. Give me my 33 cents. And it wasn't lost on me, the irony of that, that I was masking what was really going on. When we get to the end of this parable, when we get to the last verses in Luke 15, we see an older son, the older brother, And he is masking what's really going on. He's pretending to be what he's not. He's masking who he really is. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Are you the masked one? As we think about this series of the oneness of lostness, are you the one wearing the mask? And I don't mean a surgical mask today. I mean a hypocritical mask today. Are you the one masking who you really are? And so we're going to see this unfold beginning in verse 25 through verse 32 for this older son. So if you're there, say, I'm there. All right, let's look at it together. Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse number 25. And it begins this way. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Look at verse 28. 
But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Father, we are so grateful that today, whether in person or online, that we can gather under the one name, the beautiful name, the powerful name, the wonderful name of Jesus, the only name given under heaven to us by which we must be saved. We have congregated together in our homes and in this room for the purpose of hearing from you. Lord, this, this parable is striking. It is powerful. And I pray we will be prepared to hear what you have to say to us through the end of this parable. Of of all the sections in the parable, this one is most for the church. And I pray as your church, we would listen, we would respond, we will be changed and convicted as we hear from you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. I hope you're ready for this. This has rocked my world. This, this, is, this, this part of the parable has just broken me. So, so I, hope, I hope you're ready for this. And the, the takeaway I want us to focus on is, is Jesus unmasked the mask. Like he removes the mask that we wear. He came to do that. He came, and there's four unmaskings that you'll see unfold here in the text. Here's the first one. Jesus unmasked sin. Like Jesus appeared in order to unmask the sin in the heart of man. That's one reason Jesus came. And so Jesus unmasked the sin in the heart of this older brother here. And the younger brother as well. But in this section, the older brother. And we're going to see that Jesus has come to unmask sin. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 25. Now his older son. So there's two sons. okay? A younger son, an older son. The younger son, remember the the context of this parable, the younger son represents the sinners and the tax collectors, okay? The older son represents the Pharisees and the scribes. So remember, when this began, we were told that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were saying, what is this guy doing? He's receiving sinners and eating with them? What's he doing? Okay, remember that. So the older brother represents that. Older brother attitude represents the Pharisees and the scribes. So there's two sons, one father. Got it? Great. And notice he's in the field and he's coming near to the house. So he's in the field. Now we, we, we hear, we've heard this. I mean, how many times have you heard this parable? How many times have you read it, studied it? So many times. 
And at first glance, it seems as if the older brother is the loyal son, doesn't it? The one who stayed behind. The one who's there to help the father. The one who loves the father. The one who's interested in what the father's interested in. The one who has stayed on the farm to help the father. That's what we think at first glance. We get a little closer and we discover it's the complete opposite. Like no matter if if either one of these sons is in the far country or on the farm, both of them are far from the father. And we see this unfold before our eyes in a, I'm telling you, a masterful storyteller was the Lord Jesus when he walked this earth. And here he goes. He's in the field, okay? And he's probably not out in the field working because they have servants to do that. He's probably out in the field because he doesn't want to be anywhere close to the Father. Because he and the Father just don't have a relationship. It's a lack of relationship between the older son and the Father. He just doesn't want to be around. So he goes and finds something else to do in the field. Just being away from the Father. He doesn't love what the Father loves. He's not interested in what the Father's interested in. He doesn't respect the Father. And so he comes near to the house. And here's the first clue. We know that this kid and this father don't have a great relationship. He doesn't draw near to the Father. Remember when the rebellious son came home? We looked at that last week. And when he came home, he says, I know, I'll arise and I'll go to my Father. He doesn't say, I'll arise and go to the house. He said, I'll go to the Father. But the older son, we're told here, he doesn't go to the Father. He's coming in from the field to go to the house. Why? Because there is no relationship between the older son and the father. It is strained. It doesn't exist. There's a lack of, not an abundance of. And as he's coming near, he hears this music. He probably smells that fattened calf cooking and all that food cooking. He probably smells all the smells and hears all the sounds. And he must be thinking, man, what is happening at the house? And so as he approaches, he asks a servant, what does all this mean? Now, that is telling in and of itself. Nobody thought to themselves, hey, it might be a good idea to tell the older brother, the younger brothers come home. Like, how dysfunctional is this family? Nobody summoned the older brother and said, hey, your younger brother's home. Hey, why don't you come help us plan the festivities? None of that's going on. That is telling, again, showing the disconnect between the father and the older son. And there's, there's further proof here because not only does he ask the question, it's in the imperfect tense in the Greek, which means he continues to ask. He keeps on inquiring. Probably questions like this. What's going on? How is it that I was not informed of this? How is it that this happened without my consultation? Why did the father not include the older son in the planning of it? Why did the father not wait for the older son to get back? before he had the celebration, probably because the father knew the older son had no joy in his life. Have you ever considered why you're not informed or maybe the last one to know about what's happening at home, at church, at, at school, and maybe you're not consulted, maybe you're not approached, maybe you're not informed of what's happening. Whatever circle of influence you have, you ever thought maybe the reason why is because you're negative all the time? You're pessimistic Peter or legalistic Larry or negative Nancy, or throw a wet blanket on it, Tom, or the sky's always falling, Steve. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about how Pharisees are always suspicious of the joy in somebody else's life? Like always negative and always, they don't participate in the joy, they criticize the joy of someone who has joy 
in the Lord. That's the older brother attitude that is surfacing out of this text. Sam Rayner said it like this, pessimists are not leaders. Only optimists can take people to a better place. Realism is a tool. Optimism is a posture. Realism is the map. Optimism is the compass. There are too many pessimists out there under the guise of realism. They're looking at the map wrong. End quote. This older brother's looking at the map wrong, right? He, he can't see the disconnect between he and his father. And so the servant tells the son what's going on. Look at it with me, verse 27. Your brother has come and your father's killed the fattened calf. Now, my first question when, 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 when I read this was, wait a minute. Why didn't the older brother stop the younger brother from leaving in the first place? Why didn't he go plead with a younger son? Don't, why didn't he have enough respect for his father to go talk to the younger son about not leaving? And he didn't. And how do we know that? Verse 12. Go all the way back to verse number 12 in Luke 15. Look at verse number 12 in Luke 15. And we get great insight into the heart of both brothers. Look at verse 12. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between who? What does it say, church? Between who? Between them, right? Not one of them, how many of them? Yeah, them is not singular, them is plural, <laughs> right? So, it's two. so both brothers got their inheritance. The older brother didn't say, well, you know, Dad, that's not right for me to take my inheritance until you die, so you just keep that. Oh, no, no, no. The older brother got his hands on it, just like the younger brother did. The older brother was pleased to benefit from the rebellion of the younger son and keep his mask of respectability on so they both benefited from the younger son's rebellion. So the older brother hears the younger son's coming back, and the servant says to him, your father killed the fattened calf, and he's received him back safe and sound, which literally the Greek, we get our word hygiene, which means healthy and wholesome. And So in other words, the relationship between the younger son and the father has been restored. It's been restored. The younger son came back broken in his sin. The father went out to meet him and received him. And the relationship's been restored. Billy Graham said it like this, when we come to the end of ourselves, we come to the beginning of God. The younger son came to the end of himself, and therefore he came to the beginning of God. The older son is yet to do that. Sinners and tax collectors came to the end of themselves, but the Pharisees and scribes had yet to do so. And what, you see how Jesus just pulls them in, hook, line, and sinker? <laughs> just pulling these religious elite folks into this story with the older son and how he responds. He, he does it masterfully well in the next part of this verse. Uh, look at verse 28. This is how Jesus just reels them in. I mean, this is masterful storytelling. Look at verse 28. And Jesus said, but he was angry and refused to go in. The older brother heard about the restoration of the younger brother and the father. And he was so angry that he refused to go in. Now, with that thought in mind, go back to the first two verses of this chapter. Luke 15, verse 1 and 2. It's a mirror image of what's happening in verse 28 in the parable, of what's happening in the heart of the Pharisees and scribes in verse 1 and 2. 
It goes this way, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They're all coming near to Jesus. The younger son came home to the father. (laughs) It's a drawing to the Lord. And the Pharisees and scribes, verse 2, grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. That's, That's the same thing that's happening in verse 28. So imagine being drawn in, these Pharisees being drawn in by the Lord and said, hey, this son was angry and he refused to go in. And I can imagine the Pharisees going, finally, finally, somebody in this story has some sense about them. Everything that's happened up to this point has been atrocious. And finally, somebody gets it. Somebody is outraged and rightfully so that they see all that's wrong with this parable. All that's wrong with this story. See, when you look at your world, you look at your circle of influence, you look at your home, your workplace, your school, whatever it is. When you look at the world, your world, and everything feels wrong, and I know there's a lot of wrong out there, but when you look at it and and all you can see is wrong, and it feels wrong, and when you look out there and you're looking at the world, and everything in the world just seems wrong. The truth is, you are the one who is wrong. Not everything else. You. And when you look at that same world and you say, nobody's doing anything, nothing's working, God alone is working. And that's what's happening here. The Pharisees and scribes look at this and say, everything's wrong about this. And Jesus is pointing in them and saying, nope, you are what is wrong with this. <laughs> and I'm working. I've come to entreat you to come in. I've come proclaiming the gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You are what's wrong. I am what's right, is what the Lord Jesus is saying. And I know it's easier most times to be patient with prodigals than it is to be favored by Pharisees. But it doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee or a prodigal. It doesn't matter. Jesus will unmask your sin. That's why he came. That's why he appeared. To unmask your sin and unmask my sin. Whether you're a Pharisee or a prodigal, a sinner, or you don't think you're a sinner, Jesus is going to unmask your sin. That is what he does. That is why he came. To seek and save the lost. He didn't come for the healthy He came for the sinners who needed a Savior, and He's it. So Jesus unmasked our sin. Here's the second unmasking that unfolds in this text. Verse 28, Jesus unmasked the Savior. Like Jesus, when He came, remember, we just sang this a moment ago, that He brought heaven down, that heaven came down. And when Jesus came, He unveiled, He unmasked the heart of God. If you want to know... How our Father is, how God the Creator is, if you want to know what He's like, look no further than the Lord Jesus. Look no further than Jesus to know the heart of God. So Jesus unmasked the Savior. We see this again, verse 28, the very end of verse 28. Here's the Savior. Here's the hero in the parable. His Father came out and entreated Him. Now first of all, look at that first phrase. His Father came out. Where was the father before he came out? Where was he? What was he doing? He was celebrating, wasn't he? 
The one's, his son that was dead is now alive. So he's celebrating. There's a party going on. So get this. The father leaves the celebration to come out and deal with a pouting older son. You see that? He left the celebration to come after the one who refused to come in. Who came after his other son that was just as lost as the first son. So he came out. And he entreated him. So don't miss that. The father does not show favoritism. Our God is an equal opportunity Savior. He came after the younger son, and he came after the older son just as well as he did the younger son. That's who our God is. That's what his heart is. He has a heart of compassion and love for you and for me. Regardless, if we're young, old, black, white, male, female, old, young, it doesn't matter. He's coming after us. That's why he came into our brokenness to redeem us and save us and reveal to us who our Creator is and who our God is. And how he loves us and has compassion on us. We need to know that America's only hope is Jesus. America cannot save America. It's not going to happen. Our hope is not in some vaccine. That is not our hope. Our hope is not in a mask. It's, It's not in social distancing. Our hope is not in an election. Our hope is in Jesus. He is our hope. He's the only hope. He's the one who brought heaven down. Like we don't have to make our way to heaven. Heaven came down. And he's entreating us to come in. Like he's coming after you. And he's coming after me. Just as the father is coming after the older son. He's entreating his eldest son to let go of his hypocrisy and come in. Like come in. I was reading the other day a story about a police officer and pulled a driver you know, aside and driver said, officer, I don't understand what I did. I didn't run a red light. I wasn't speeding. He said, no, he didn't do any of that. He said, I really don't know what I did. He said, well, I saw you shaking your fist at the person who cut you off. I saw you pounding your steering wheel at the lady in the slow lane as you went around. And I saw you stick your head out the window and yell as traffic came to a stop. And he said, well, is any of that illegal? He said, well, not, not necessarily illegal, but I read the bumper sticker on the back of your car. It says, Jesus loves you and so do I. And I just thought to myself, this car has to be stolen. Right? So I'm just making sure the car's not stolen. I mean, we're, we're mask, are we masking who we really are? Some of you say, that was my drive to, to church today. That's how I drove to church today. That's how I got here to church today. I, it, that would have been me, but I left so early, nobody else was out on the road. <laughs> Tony Evans said it like this, if all you see is what you see, you don't see all there is to be seen. In other words, do you see your sin? Not somebody else's sin, your sin. Do you see the Savior? Like there's only one. (laughs) Praise God, we only need one. (laughs) And there's only one. There's not multiple saviors. There's one. His name is Jesus. And so Jesus unmasked our sin. He unmasked who the Savior is. Number three. Jesus unmasked the unsaved, those who think they're saved, but they're not. See, the lostness in this text is very interesting. There's a lost sheep. The sheep knew he was lost. He just didn't know how to get back. There's the lost coin. The lost coin didn't know it was lost. It's a coin, right? Then there's the lost prodigal who knows he's lost and knows how to get back. And then there's the older son, who's lost as he can be, but doesn't have a clue that he's lost. He doesn't even know he's lost. He hasn't a clue. So Jesus will unmask 
Those of us who think we're saved and we're not. The unsaved, he unmasked. And he does, I mean, verse 29, 30, and 31 are some of, from an Eastern culture. Now, in the Western culture, it may not be as shocking, but in an Eastern culture, these three verses, the audacity of these three verses is striking, shocking, horrifying for a Pharisee or for a family in the East to experience this. So look at it with me. Verse 29, it's extremely shocking, extremely telling. Verse 29, but the older son answered his father, and here's what he said, look now. (laughs) You you remember when the rebellious son came home? (laughs) He said, I'll arise and go to my father. And then when he got there, he said, father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. At least he referred to his father as father. Here, this older son, the degree of disrespect is mind-boggling. He doesn't even call him father. He says, look here. Hey, look! If I said that to my mama growing up, I would have less teeth than I have right now. Look! These many years I've served you. Now don't... That word for served in the Greek is doulos. It's the word for slave. So here's what the older son is saying. And this encompasses the mentality of a legalist, a legalistic person. This older son is saying, I have been your slave for all these years. This is his son saying this. So in other words, the son is admitting Here's here's the mentality of of, of a legalistic person. This son is admitting that all he has done for the father all those years has not been out of joy. No joy at all. Like he hasn't done it with my pleasure. That, That hadn't been anywhere close to where he's been. Instead, all he's done for his father has been equivalent to the drudgery of slavery. He's viewed it as being his slave. I've been enslaved for you for all these years. Wow, the audacity. I mean the audacity. And then it just gets worse. I mean, listen to this. He goes on to say it like this. And I never disobeyed your command. So I've been your slave all this time, and I've never sinned. I have never sinned. Oh, my soul. What audacity. I've never disobeyed your command. He has no joy in his life, so why then would he want to go into the celebration and participate in the Father's joy when he has none? And then he says, I've never disobeyed your command. Listen, church, we are our emptiest when we are full of ourselves. We are empty. When we're full of self. And this guy, I mean, how, can, how can you be more full of yourself? I've, I've never disobeyed your command. Wow. Here's the problem with the pharisaical, hypocritical, legalistic spirit. It's this. You don't think you need grace when the one thing you need is grace. This Pharisee doesn't think he needs grace. The older son doesn't. The Pharisee didn't. Why? Because they're thinking, well, I've merited God's favor. I've earned it. I deserve it, man. <laughs> I deserve God's favor. I've earned it. 
I've kept up with these 600 plus laws that we've instituted. I tithe and I read the Bible and I go to church and I do all these things and I've earned the favor of God. So unmerited favor, which is the definition of grace, would not even register. They would not even see the need for grace. They would never ask for grace. They would never expect to receive grace. They'd never expect anybody else to need grace either. The older son ends up adding hypocrisy to his list of rebellion, which makes him even more rebellious than the younger son. I mean, when we read the prodigal of the uh, the, 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 the parable of the prodigal, we think of the younger son as being the most rebellious. In reality, it's the older son who is even more rebellious because he's blinded by his own hypocrisy. Vance Havner said it like this. Christ's worst opposition came from folks who went to church, read the Bible, prayed in public, tithed, lived moral lives, separated from the world, tried to win others, and were headed straight to hell, end quote. Jesus' greatest opposition. Dean and Sarah says that he believes cultural Christianity is the most underrated mission field in America, not just in the South, but in America. This idea of cultural Christianity, which is being a Christian by name only. Let me give you some description of what cultural Christianity is. It's when your appearance of being a Christian is more important than your adherence to Christ. Cultural Christianity is being in the church rather than being in Christ or being the church. Cultural Christianity is by culture only and not conviction. It's saying we did this and we did that rather than God did this and God did that. It's being a fan of Jesus rather than a follower of Jesus. It's having good conversations, but not gospel conversations. It's, it's moralistic, therapeutic deism without the one who has risen. <laughs> Just good works and good deeds. And it's religion without repentance. It's tradition without transformation. Cultural Christianity is made up of unsaved Christians who think they're saved. I mean, this Pharisee never thought he needed any kind of grace, or the older son didn't. Nor did the Pharisees. And here's where it gets crazy audacious. He doesn't stop. He just keeps going. It just gets worse and worse and worse. So now look what he says after he says, I've never sinned. I don't even need to be forgiven. Here's what he says to his father next. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. So here's what the older son's saying. Not only do I not need to be forgiven by you, father, but father, you need to be forgiven by me. And when we treat God that way, here's what we're doing. We're taking Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're flipping it. And we're saying, For God has sinned and fallen short of the glory of me. That is what this older son is saying to his father. Father, you have sinned and you've fallen short of my glory. And when we treat God that way, that's what we're doing. And we can't even see it. We're blinded to it. What audacity. What audacity. And then he goes on and just rants on his brother. The disdain that he has for his brother is so evident that he can't even call him his brother in verse 30. But when this son of yours came, he can't even refer to him as his brother. He dislikes him so much. And he makes this statement. He says, he has devoured your property with prostitutes. We have no evidence of that in this parable. That's most likely what was in the heart of the older son. That that's what he wanted to do. 
That was the lustful thoughts that he wanted to be a reality in his own life. So he's just attacking his brother, saying, you killed the fatted calf for him, and just attack, attack, attack. Matt Chandler said, it's an evil thing to be an expert in the sins of your brothers and sisters. That's evil, to be an expert in their sins and ignore yours altogether. Spurgeon said, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are actually worse than he thinks you to be. (laughs) You are a worse sinner than anybody could ever think you could be, and God's grace is greater than any word could ever describe. His grace and mercy are so much more. There's a word here I don't want you to miss in verse 31 when the father says to him, Son, you're always with me and what is mine is yours. The word for son here is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's a different word. There's son used multiple times in this parable. But only here is this particular Greek word used. And it's the word technon. And it it, it literally translates as my child. Now, I want you to look at Luke 16, verse 25. It shouldn't be hard for you to find Luke 16. It's right next to Luke 15, right? So Luke 16, verse 25. What's going on in Luke 16 in this context is the rich man and Lazarus. Both men died. Lazarus was very poor. He was begging at the rich man's gate, and the rich man died. Lazarus died. Rich man went to hell. Lazarus went to heaven at Abraham's side. And at this point in in this text, Abraham and the rich man are having a conversation. And Abraham refers to the rich man as child. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, talking to the rich man, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So that word technon is used to describe A great chasm between Abraham and the rich man. And so back in Luke 15, the same word is used to describe the lack of relationship, the disconnect, the separation between the older son and the father. And he says, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You know, I read the other day that family heirlooms are not as uh, important as they once were. More children and grandchildren today don't want to clutter their homes with all the antiquated antiques, we could say, of family heirlooms. They just don't want them anymore. How many people do you know who grew up in the church, grew up in a Christian home, and have walked away from the faith? So many have been prodigals from the faith. But just as many, there's so many others that are Pharisees. You've been in this church your whole life. And you're as far from God as someone who's never heard the name of Christ. You're just that far away. And you think you're okay, but in reality, you've never been transformed. Your heart's never been changed. You don't have any joy. That's a good measure to determine, am am, am I a saved, born again follower of Christ? Do you have any joy? Do you have, any, have you ever had any inexplainable joy in the midst of whatever you face? Is there this deep-seated joy? If not, you very well may be what the Father is unmasking here, what Jesus is unmasking. That is an unsaved Christian by name only. 
Number four, here's the last unmasking we see here. In verse 32, Jesus unmasked the saved. Verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. In other words, it's right to do. It's right to celebrate. It would be wrong not to celebrate somebody that was dead but now is alive. That would be wrong, wouldn't it? Of course. But it's right to celebrate somebody who has been dead but now is alive. That's the right thing to do. It would be wrong not to do that. So what is the father saying to this older son? I don't want you to miss this. As Jesus unmasked the saved. See, the saved get excited about when other people get saved. There's a joy when you see somebody get baptized and they're making their decision public and they're excited and you're excited and there's a, a joy in the saved when another is saved. And so here this invitation from the Father is so practical and relevant and powerful. Here's what the Father is saying to his oldest son. It was right to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and is found. And here's what the father one more time is pleading and urging his older son to come on in. He's saying, yes, we celebrated when your brother came home and we'll celebrate too when you submit, surrender, confess, and come on in and come home. Father's saying, we'll celebrate both. God is an equal opportunity Savior. He doesn't show favoritism. Jesus unmasked the mast. Moody church pastor John Harper boarded the Titanic with his six-year-old daughter. And when that ship began to sink, he put her on one of the lifeboats, but he did not follow her. Rather, he ran through the ship, yelling, Women, children, and unsaved get to the lifeboats. Eyewitnesses said he preached until he disappeared in the ocean's waters. He never stopped preaching and calling people to call on the name of Jesus. One in particular, four years later, recounted what occurred with Pastor John Harper. He said, and I quote, I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting along that awful night, the tide brought Pastor Harper near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not saved. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. And then the tide took him away, disappeared. A few minutes later, the tide brought him back. So he asked again, sir, are you saved now? He said, no, sir, I'm not saved. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And at that point, he just disappeared under the water, apparently just drowned. He never saw him again. And the eyewitness said, there he was, bobbing in the water with two miles of water under him. And he said, right there, I believed. I trusted in Jesus and I believed. And this is how he ended his statement. I remember he began his statement with this statement, I am a survivor of the Titanic. But he ended his statement this way, I am John Harper's last convert. You know, there are going to be some people who survive this pandemic. Do you know that? <laughs> We're going to come out on the other side. 
There's going to be some that actually get the coronavirus and survive it. There's going to be some that survive through this pandemic. No matter how long it lasts, there will be some survivors. 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, when this history is recounted, I wonder how many of them will have a similar testimony. How many of them will be able to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a COVID-19 survivor, but in the statement was something like this. I am a convert of this man or this woman from Red Bank Baptist Church. I'm a convert. Yeah, I'm, I'm a COVID-19 survivor, but during that pandemic, I was introduced to Jesus, and I'm a convert of this person or that person that were part of Red Bank Baptist Church. That's our job, to take this gospel, this unmerited, undeserved, unearned grace that we have received, and proclaim it to those who need to hear it. That's what we're doing. We're to point people to Jesus one conversation at a time. This Christ, this masterful storyteller who, who laid down his life for you and me, who shed his blood, who died on the cross, who was buried and rose to life to give us life. This is our message. This is our hope. Now, some of you may be here today and you may be thinking for the first time, I don't really know if I'm saved or not. Maybe for the first time. Listen, if, if nothing's changed in your life since you got saved, let's one hour on Sunday, then you may be an unsaved Christian. You may not be saved. Spurgeon said it like this, if, if you have no wish for others to be saved, then you're not saved yourself. Like if you don't think about sharing Jesus or you don't want to learn how to do that or you have no desire to do that or you don't ever do that, you very well may be an unsaved Christian. And to be saved, you must first realize that you're not saved and then recognize I'm wrong and Jesus is right and put your faith in what he has done for you on the cross and through his burial and resurrection and call on his name and believe and you'll be saved. And we want you to do that today. So whether you're in the room or out, text Jesus to 79969. We'd love to have a conversation with you about you trusting the Lord as your Savior. And here's why. Jesus appeared to unmask our sin, to unmask the Savior. That's why he appeared. Like Jesus appeared in order to unmask all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus appeared to unmask believers who were not condemned and unbelievers who were condemned already. Jesus appeared to unmask cultural Christianity, which are Christians by name only, and he came to unmask Christians in every culture who have called on the name of Jesus. Jesus appeared to unmask the good we call evil and the evil we call good. He came to unmask doers of the word and hearers of the word only. He came to unmask his fans and his followers. He came to unmask the grumblers of God and the goers for God. The gospel conversationalist and the gossip conservationist. Jesus came to unmask us all. He came to unmask those who humble themselves and those who need to be humbled. He came to unmask the judgment of the walking dead and the judge of the living and the dead. He came to unmask our greater passion and God have mercy on our souls that we have a greater passion for sharing trivial opinions about COVID-19 and a lesser passion to share the truths of John 3.16. God have mercy on us. He's can't, he has come to unmask our sin. He's come to unmask the rebellious, the revived, the repentant, the righteous, the runaways. He's come to unmask sin, the Savior, the saved, the unsaved. He's come to unmask. 
anyone today who will take away heaven's takeaway and those one day who will be taken away to hell. Jesus alone is the difference maker. He's our hero. He's our hope. He came to unmask sin, unmask the Savior. Trust in Him today. He loves you. He died for you. He is raised to life. He's coming again for those who believe in Him. Trust in Him today. Give your life to Christ right now. Do it now.